Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success. And practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us here. I'm coming to you live from the nation's capital, although I started my day this morning in Louisville, Kentucky. And I want to thank all the folks down there for a wonderful board training that we did yesterday. Uh, hopped on the plane, and I'm back here to host the show live here on The Nonprofit Coach. For those of you who are familiar with the show, you know that you can join us in the chat room. I see a number of folks over in the chat room. Don't forget, you can ask questions there. Uh, you can also, as the announcer mentioned, you can call in and ask questions of our page two expert when we get to page two by dialing 347-324-3080. You also have the option of emailing your questions into the show at tedhart at tedhart.com. This is Tuesday, November 1st. You are live with the Nonprofit Coach, and as always, we start with page one news. <laughs> We not only have a great page two expert for you today, Linda Lysakowski is going to be joining us here live on the Nonprofit Coach to talk about all things fundraising, including the secrets to successful major gift fundraising and capital campaigns. But here on page one news, you can follow along with us at tedhearts.com. Just click on radio links and you'll see all of the links for the news that I'll be sharing with you today. First up here on the Nonprofit Coach, page one news. Uh, is a, a really important article about branding and auditing your online social media. Uh, this comes to us from uh, Social Media Today uh, and uh, goes down through the, the uh, various topics that need to be included in a brand audit as a baseline and what opportunities you have online. Read all the details over uh, in Social Media Today at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, page one news, is how do the top 50 nonprofits use social media? Well, over at NetTwits Think Tank, uh, which is put out by Blackbaud, uh, you can read all about the interesting facts that they have found about the top 50 nonprofit organizations. 92% of the top 50 nonprofits have at least one social media presence on their homepage and is growing. The American Red Cross was the first organization on the list to create a Twitter account. Uh, so read all about the facts and details that are put out uh, over at the radio links today at tedhart.com. Next up here on page one news comes to us from Razo. 
uh, inspiring generosity is reminding us that email fundraising is still king. Now, we talk a lot about social media uh, on, uh, on this site, and appropriately so. However, donation amounts are bigger uh, with email, and the details and uh, the uh, various levels of support that you can find from Facebook to Twitter to LinkedIn and YouTube, and email donors are found to be twice as generous as those from social media. Now, keep in mind that social media is growing, and it takes serious strategy to learn how to be social and to integrate this into your traditional fundraising and your email fundraising. So it's not surprising that we would find that email, which was an early adopter to online, uh, still continues to produce for nonprofit organizations. Make sure, as we always remind you here on The Nonprofit Coach, that you have a balanced approach to your overall fundraising program, understanding the power of email. And while social media is growing and you should be investing in building the social capital that you will need for long-term online success, without a solid uh, platform of email service, you are not going to succeed online. Read all the details and the information uh, from the conclusions of the Razo study over in the radio links today at TedHeart at TedHeart.com. Now, over on social media today, again, one of our favorite platforms, uh, they bring to us uh, over here in the radio links 10 things that you should include in a social media plan. Now, this is not something that you take lightly. Getting involved with social media requires that you be social. Now, what you want to do is make sure that you have each of these 10 steps included in your overall plan, a plan that needs to be honed and strengthened over time. You start off with baseline metrics, understanding who is visiting you on your Facebook fan page, how many people are following you on Twitter, uh, and then start looking at competitor benchmarks. Not that you're looking to copy your competitors, but you do want to know as you're putting together your strategy, uh, what are some of the best practices, and certainly within those that you compare yourself to, are you out in front or are you lagging behind? And so forth and so on, in the 10 steps here, what you want to do is make sure that you are taking into account how you are staffing the overall social media plan. This is not something that you just send out a tweet once a week and call it a social media plan. Again, you want to have a content calendar. You want to make sure that you have partners that you are relying on. And the key to a social media plan, which we have shared many times here on The Nonprofit Coach, is inspiring those influencers who are supporters of your organization to be involved with your social media plan. Now, I'm going to have the opportunity to uh, be part of uh, a National Philanthropy Day uh, uh, event uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, and I wanted to uh, bring you up to date on that and give you an opportunity to hear from one of the organizers uh, at the uh, uh, AFP chapter. Donna Claire is joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach uh, live uh, here. Donna is the president of the AFP Maryland chapter of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. They are the hosts of this event. Welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach, Donna Claire. Thank you, Ted. I'm, I'm happy to be with you today. Donna, you've got a, a very big event that has a long and illustrious uh, history uh, in Maryland. Uh, one of the uh, points of pride that I have is as a former president of the AFP Maryland uh, chapter to see just how strong things are in Maryland. Tell us all about your plans for National Philanthropy Day, letting all of our listeners know what is National Philanthropy Day, and then let them know um, if they're in the Maryland area how they'll be able to hear me next week. Great. Um, our event will be on Wednesday, November 9th, and it will be at the Hyatt Regency downtown in Baltimore in our Inner Harbor area. And you're right, it is a longstanding uh, tradition in Baltimore to, to uh, host this event to recognize one or more um, individuals from the greater metropolitan area who have made an outstanding contribution through their philanthropy the prior year or the prior years. This is our 17th year um, hosting this event, and we are delighted this year to be honoring a couple of people. One, our, our, our outstanding philanthropists this year are Janet and Frank Kelly, longtime um, donors to a number of Baltimore institutions, including the R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center, 
um, a number of the universities in the area, as well as the University of Maryland School of Medicine, Stella Maris, which is part of Mercy Hospital. Um, they also have their own foundation um, for the family to funnel their individual gifts through to large and small organizations. Um, they've supported the U.S. Lacrosse Foundation, the Calvert Hall High School Lacrosse Organization, lots of different um, Christian and faith-based organizations. We're also going to be honoring the the Meyerhoff um, Fund, the Meyerhoff Foundation, um, long, long-time supporters and the original founders of the um, Symphony Hall, the Meyerhoff Hall here in Baltimore, and they are also supporters, long-time supporters of Johns Hopkins, which is where I work for the Wilmer Eye Institute, but they have been on the Johns Hopkins University Board of Trustees as well as the Medicine Trustees. Um, so we expect a little over 600 people to come, and we are going to be welcoming uh, Congressman Dutch Ruppersberger to be speaking on behalf of the, the Kellys, and um, the president of the symphony will be speaking on behalf of the um, Meyerhoff family um, and recognizing them for their work. And well, it certainly sounds like a, a terrific lineup and an important uh, national uh, part of a, an important uh, series of national of uh, national philanthropy days around the country. Um, tell us a little bit more about the educational aspect of your particular day in Baltimore. Well, that in recognition of the the tough economic times that fundraisers have been navigating for the past few years, we will be offering a free educational program in the morning for about 90 minutes to um, attendees. It's free to the people who are attending the luncheon. And you, we are delighted that you will be coming and um, speaking to the attendees at the educational program on social social media. Well, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to uh, to give back to the Maryland chapter and to be involved uh, with National Philanthropy Day. I think it's important for all the fundraisers who are listening here to the nonprofit coach uh, to be part of a National Philanthropy Day celebration wherever they may be uh, located to draw attention to the important uh, service that philanthropy provides uh, to our nation and to our world. So thank you so much for joining us today here on the Nonprofit Coach. Just let our listeners know if they would like to attend National Philanthropy Day for the education uh, and for the lunch, uh, how they can contact you and how they might be able to uh, register. And in addition to uh, contacting your office, we have provided a link uh, to your AFP Maryland website today in the radio links that are available at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. That that actually would be the best the best route to more information or to sign up um, for either the educational program or the luncheon would be www.afpmaryland.org. Um, all the information is on our website as well as contact phone numbers. Terrific, terrific. Is there a phone number that folks can call if they want to get information or find out more details? Um, actually, they can call me directly at 410-955-2020. That's terrific. Well, that's a, that's a great, easy-to-remember uh, phone number, and uh, we thank you so much, Donna Clare, president of the AFP Maryland chapter, for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach and letting us know about a very important National Philanthropy Day celebration taking place next week in Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you again for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you. Again, I really want to highlight the importance of National Philanthropy Day, which was spearheaded by the Association of Fundraising Professionals. And you can find National Philanthropy Day celebrations around the world uh, and certainly around uh, North America. So make sure that you connect to your local chapter of AFP or do an Internet search on how you can become part of National Philanthropy Day. Back here on uh, page one to draw your attention uh, to our next news item, and this is an Intuit 2020 report, 20 trends that will shape the next decade. Don't miss the opportunity to take a look into the future by reading this Intuit study about the future of social media and online activities. Next up here in the radio links, you'll find a copy of the Nonprofit Research Collaborative Summer and Early Fall 2011 Report. 
this was uh, put together by the nonprofit collaborative. Uh, we heard a little bit more, uh, a little about that last week uh, for the next research project that they are involved with. Uh, charitable uh, giving comes primarily from four sources, according to the Giving USA. Uh, over the past 50 years, giving by living individuals constitutes about 75% of all charitable giving in the United States. I'm sure that that fact is going to come up in page two today when we're talking to Linda Lysakowski. Currently, foundations provide about 14% of charitable giving overall in the United States, with the states also coming from individuals providing an additional 6% of support. Rounding that out, corporations and corporate foundations give about 5% of the total. So for the balance of your programming, uh, one of the recommendations that we have for you here on the Nonprofit Coach is to make sure that you are appropriately balancing your fundraising program towards individuals. A, because they're more likely to renew. B, because they're the only ones that will leave you in their will uh, and leave estate gifts to you. But they also uh, constitute about approximately 75% of all charitable giving in the United States. So if you are heavily balanced on foundation and corporate support, it's time to recalculate your overall fundraising program. Read more all about the details in the Nonprofit Research Collaborative Summer Early Fall 2011 report, and that's available to you for download in PDF form uh, over at the radio links at tedhart.com. The Art of Social Listening is the next article I want to draw your attention to, and that comes from Brand E Biz. Brands like Gatorade and Dell have built internal social listening command centers as a mean, means of identifying and addressing the needs of their consumers and potential customers in real time. This becomes a very real possibility for nonprofit organizations to really understand and learn from influencers and those who support their organization by learning how to become good active social listeners, utilizing the tools such as Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and others to monitor information, gather demographic information, and find out what's happening in real time related to topics uh, connected to your charitable organization. Next up in on page one news uh, is a link from Yahoo. I want to draw your attention to the service available to all of us called Upcoming. Upcoming.yahoo.com uh, is a service where you can post your events, activities, uh, charitable opportunities in your community uh, on Yahoo. And those who are using Upcoming or using the calendar feature of Yahoo will be notified of local events uh, per the settings of their Yahoo service. Well, they're not going to find you if you're not uploading the information. And this is, uh, as they say, upcoming events and things to do. Uh, so you can find out. We're providing you a link in the radio links uh, directly to the page that allows you to add content uh, to the upcoming on Yahoo. Check it out at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. We want to thank the folks over at Memiburn, uh, the tech-savvy insight and analysis uh, uh, blog, online advertising and marketing, for sharing with us today seven rules for building a mobile campaign. Stuart Thomas, who is one of their staff reporters, has put together a step-by-step -step, uh, for you to uh, make mobile a full part of your media campaign. So if you, again, our recommendation here on the Nonprofit Coach is that you really should not be looking at mobile until you have a strong website and a strong social media strategy. But if you have those things in place and you're looking for nuances of how you can build your overall uh, social media uh, and digital technology uh, services, check out this really wonderful uh, article that's going to talk about how mobile can become a part of your full media campaign, that you can integrate it properly uh, into your other online and offline services, and how it can help you build your community. So check that out over in the radio links uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, and with that, that wraps up page one news. Uh, and so that means it's now time to jump over to page two. 
my pleasure to welcome here to the nonprofit coach a good friend of mine, someone that I've known for a number of years and is certainly uh, one of the stars of the nonprofit uh, sector, and that is Linda Lysakowski. Uh, Linda Lysakowski has provided services to the nonprofit sector uh, for many years and has been known as a thought leader. Not only is she president and CEO of her firm, but she's also an advanced certified fundraising executive. Linda is one of a few, uh, of fewer than 100 of us, and I'm ACFRE as well, to hold that designation. We can talk a little bit more about that to make sure that everyone knows what ACFRE is and that there is a point in your career that you should step up and become uh, an ACFRE fundraiser. In her 17 years as a philanthropic consultant, she has managed capital campaigns, helped dozens of nonprofit organizations achieve their development goals, and has trained more than 20,000 professionals all over the world in countries such as Mexico, Canada, Egypt, and certainly throughout most of the United States. Linda is a graduate of the AFP's Faculty Training Academy, as am I, and has served on the board of directors for the AFP Foundation, of which I served as a treasurer at one time, and has received two AFP research grants, uh, which are not easy to come by and certainly is an indication of just what kind of thought leader uh, Linda is. Linda has received the Outstanding Fundraising Executive Award from both the Eastern Pennsylvania and the Las Vegas uh, chapters. That is quite an accolade. To receive them from even one chapter is quite enough, but uh, has also been recognized internationally in Atlanta with the Barbara Marion Award for Outstanding Service to AFP. Linda is a graduate of the uh, Lay Ecclesial uh, Ministry Program. I'm sorry if I didn't quite get that right, uh, 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 Linda, uh, from the Diocese of Las Vegas. Uh, I can go on and on about Linda Lysakowski, but what I really want to do is bring her here on the show. She has written several books uh, and is quite uh, a leader in our industry, and I'm honored to welcome her here to the Nonprofit Coach. Welcome here, Linda Lysakowski. Hi, Ted. Hey, it's great to be here and join you. I, as you were reading my bio, I realized how far back you and I go, probably before either of us had an ACFRE. So it's been Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No, we we do go back a long way, and and that's uh, one of the, uh, the the special pleasures of having this radio show is the opportunity to uh, introduce and to draw attention to terrific thought leaders like yourself uh, in our industry. So, Linda, I want to start off by asking you to share with our listeners a little bit about your firm, uh, where you're located. I know that you've moved west, and you're now in Las Vegas. Um, right. So we can just get caught up to date with where is Linda Lysakowski, a little bit about your firm. Okay. Well, I'm, I guess I'm sort of like where's Waldo because you never know where I'm going to pop up. But uh, for years I had my business, founded my business in Pennsylvania and lived in Pennsylvania all my life until about eight years ago when my husband and I decided to relocate to warm, sunny weather. And after this, this past week, I'm glad to be in warm, sunny weather rather than where you uh, had some – unprecedented October snowstorms on the East Coast, but we live in Las Vegas. I do, as as you do, travel all over the country, and as you were talking about your um, National Philanthropy Day celebration in Baltimore, um, I realize that every year I, I struggle with how to get to all the Philanthropy Day celebrations that I would like to attend, but I'm speaking at one in Fresno, California on the 15th, and then um, the next day we'll be heading to the Sierra chapter in Reno where we're welcoming Andrew Watt as our keynote speaker for Philanthropy Day in Reno. And then the next day we'll be in one in Las Vegas. So <laughs> it'll be a busy, busy week for all of us. Well, and I but, think it is important, uh, and, I, and I really appreciate you sharing just the, the extent of the efforts that you put into attending National Philanthropy Day celebrations. Uh, why don't we take just a, a little bit of a detour there and talk a little bit about the importance of National Philanthropy Day since we are in National Philanthropy Day month, which is uh, November. Um, and uh, you and I go back to the earliest days of the founding of National Philanthropy Day. So why don't you talk a little bit about why you put so much effort and why you think it's important for our industry? Well, I think, you know, it's really important that we do celebrate philanthropy. I I think that this is an industry which so many people don't understand, even within the nonprofit sector. One of the things that I've always found is that so many people who work in a nonprofit 
really don't understand what the development people actually do all day. It's like, what do those fundraising people do? They seem to be party people, and gosh, they're having a lot of fun, but they don't realize all the work and dedication that goes into this as a career, which is why I was really excited to release my first book through Charity Channel of fundraising as a career, What Are You Crazy?, because sometimes I think that philanthropy is so underrated and people in this country and even in the nonprofit sector don't really have a good handle on what fundraising is all about and what philanthropy is all about and what contribution it makes to our country and our society. So I think it's real important that we celebrate philanthropy as much as we can. So I certainly encourage all of you to look up your local Philanthropy Day celebrations and get involved. Now, in addition to your your work uh, with AFP, uh, you've been recognized by a couple of chapters. To be recognized by one chapter is quite an accolade. Um, tell us a little bit about what is, what do they look for in that kind of award, um, and what kind of example you think that sets for uh, younger philanthropy uh, uh, officers. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting that. Um, when I received both of these awards, I was one of the few consultants to ever receive an award because typically it goes to a person who's been in the profession um, as a development officer within an organization who has so shown that they've been able to raise money successfully, but more important that they're really dedicated to the profession of philanthropy, that they give back to their communities, to their AFP chapters, to their local nonprofit community, and so being a recipient of this award, I think it was a really proud moment for me at both of these um, events because it showed that that people can be recognized for this work, that it's not just the thankless job that we sometimes think of it in development. Sometimes a lot of, a lot of times we're behind the camera instead of in front of the camera when the the board members and the volunteers and the executive directors rightly um, are in front of the camera but we as development professionals make it all happen. And I, I often think about this profession and many, many times have quoted Doug Lawson who described fundraising as the magic mingling of a grateful recipient, a joyful giver, and an artful asker. And I really believe that takes all three of those to make philanthropy happen. And you certainly have uh, perfected the role of artful asker um, and I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about some of the ways uh, that you have done that. You you are an author, uh, you are a prolific um, uh, public speaker, uh, and you really put an emphasis on giving back and helping uh, those who are new in our profession to really learn uh, the art and the science of uh, philanthropy. Why is that important to you? Well, to me it's important because when I came into this profession, I came from a banking background. I always describe myself as a recovering banker. <laughs> I spent 11 years in banking. And when I came into development, it was a, a whole new world for me. And it was great because I had a lot of business experience to lend to the field. But I realized that I really needed to learn a heck of a lot about development and how it all worked. And I was really fortunate that I had a, a boss whose first words of advice to me were, you had to get involved in AFP, and, and he didn't just say join it. He said get involved. So I've always been a, a person who, if I'm going to get involved in something, I really want to get myself ingrained in it. So one of the first things I did in this profession was to join AFP and to get involved in going to conferences. And I have to confess that on my drive to my first AFP meeting, I was it was about an hour drive at that time. There was no local chapter where I lived. So I'm thinking to myself, why am I going to a meeting with a bunch of other people who are raising money from the same people I'm trying to raise money from, and what are they going to have to share with me? And I found out when I got to that meeting they had a heck of a lot to share with me, and they were willing to share it. So I've been really blessed with a couple of fantastic mentors in my career. So as uh, my career is certainly not ready to come to a close yet, but as I matured in my career, I realized that one of the things I want to do was to serve as a mentor for others. And one of the things I think I'm most proud of is the fact that in my 
career, I've been able to train more than about 20,000 people throughout the world. And to me, it's really exciting when somebody years later comes back and says to me, boy, I was in one of your sessions and I learned so much and it really helped me in my career. Um, I've also mentored several people through the CFRE process and through the ACFRE process. And I think I'm just as proud when they stand up there getting their ACFREs as I was when I got my own. So to me, and that's quite really a process. Let's um, uh, let's share with our listeners because uh, you're doing a very nice job of sort of walking us through the progression here. Let's let's talk about CFRE. What is CFRE, uh, and why do you think that's important for our listeners today as they uh, mature in the professionalism of their own career? Well, I think CFRE is really critical. It's often been described as sort of the CPA of the fundraising field, and I have been noticing throughout my career when I look at things like the Chronicle of Philanthropy or any kind of postings for job openings, you're starting to see more and more job postings that say CFRE preferred or CFRE required, um, I haven't seen too much yet saying ACFRE preferred, but I do know that it's becoming a lot more accepted, and people are starting to understand that this is a profession. And that's why, to me, the certification process is so important. It was one of my personal career goals that I set, and I really believe in in, in the, my book on fundraising as a career, I really encourage people that when they're setting goals for their organizations every year, how much money they're going to raise, how many more personal visits they're going to make, et cetera, et cetera, that they also take time to set goals for themselves as an individual because it was from day one, I think, of my career, I had set myself several goals. The first one was to become a CFRE, and as soon as I was in the field five years, I made sure I got that CFRE, and then I set a goal to become an ACFRE. And then I set a goal that I wanted to someday be a consultant. And before you knew it, I was a consultant. And then I set a goal that I wanted to speak and teach other people. And then finally, my last goal that I set and and have certainly achieved is that I wanted to become a writer. And I think I've just published, I believe it's book number eight by now. (laughs) I'm not even quite sure. You certainly have been prolific. I thought it was bad (laughs) enough that I've published six. uh, Wow. you have uh, moved ahead with with uh, with more than that. I, I wonder if um, you can share with me, and, and I and I, this is going to dovetail into our topic of today to really get into uh, your thoughts and your uh, best advice on capital campaigns and raising big dollars. I was wondering if you could uh, share your thoughts uh, related to uh, professional fundraisers, those with and, and without CFRE or ACFRE, as the donor's advocate. I think that's really important because what many people don't realize is there's kind of a hierarchy in fundraising, and when you go into this field, while your career is important, it's probably the bottom rung on the ladder. More important than yourself and your advancement in your career is your organization and its mission. But even more important than your organization is the wishes and the desires and the needs of the donor. And I always tell people if they want to be successful in fundraising, they have to always put the donor first, even above their own organizations. And sometimes that's hard to do because you have goals to meet and you have to be concerned about the best interests of your organization. But sometimes the donor's best interests have to take precedence, always the donor's best interests have to take precedence And sometimes it's hard to do that, to say, well, gosh, you know, maybe I have to turn away a gift from my organization because it's not in the best interest of the donor. But if you do that, that to me is when you become a true professional. Linda, can you give us an example of of what you mean by that? Because I I think you're right. That that is a concept, I think, that is a turning point uh, for someone who is a fundraiser uh, soon to become a development officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what does that mean to be that donor's advocate? Can you give us an example so our listeners can really understand what you mean by that? Well, I, I can give you an example that didn't happen to me personally, but it's one that sticks in my mind of a friend of mine who was also a consultant. And while she was working for a nonprofit organization, she was approached by someone who wanted to make a gift to her organization. But after talking to this woman, she realized that it was it, – 
was a gift that she wanted to make out of current assets, and she realized that this was just not in the woman's best interest, that she had some health concerns and she had family concerns. And so she basically sort of talked the woman out of making the gift at that time. But in the end, she felt better because she did the ethical and professional thing, and actually it resulted in the end in a planned gift to her organization so she did reap the benefits eventually her organization reaped the benefits of this woman's generosity but if she had not really taken the time to work with this donor and do what was in her best interest she may not have ever seen that gift realized for her organization and she also would not have been acting in the best professional interest so sometimes it just takes you know that your one of your segments on Page one was all about listening, and I think that's really the most important asset that um, a true professional fundraiser can have after the number one of integrity. The next thing that I think is the most important is listening. Yeah, and and Linda, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think it is um, an indication of the maturing of someone's career um, as a professional development officer uh, as you're moving towards uh, possibly becoming a CFRE, possibly becoming an an ACFRE, is to have that maturity to understand that it's not just about getting the check. It's not just about, even though you have the pressure uh, of meeting a budget, uh, what I always uh, try to remind groups that I speak to uh, is that I have no fear that you'll raise too much money. (laughs) <laughs> and the reason for that is that I know that your organization will spend every dime that you raise. The key as a, as a fundraiser is to have the long-term view of what will the fundraising look for this organization five years and ten years down the road, as opposed to just shaking down everybody that you come in contact with for a gift today. Right. I, I think that's really critical. That so So little of what we do is actually about bringing in the dollars, and it, it, I know to the public it seems like that's all we do, but they always say in real estate, you know, the three key words are location, 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 and in fundraising, those of us who have been around any length of time probably have learned that the three key words in fundraising are relationships, 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 and that's really what it's about. It's not necessarily always about bringing in the dollars, which sometimes we tend to focus on way too much. Right. But also understanding that in building those relationships, as you said, and putting an emphasis uh, on the long-term success of the organization as opposed to just short-term gains for dollars that may come in, that that, uh, you will raise more money. Right. Absolutely. And and understanding that that's that's the the case. Now, Linda, we're going to take just a a real quick break just so I can uh, give – a little bit of uh, a scheduling update uh, for our listeners. When we come back, I wanted to uh, talk, uh, get right into capital campaigns. Uh, I know that your best-selling book uh, was the development plan, uh, Mm -hmm. and part of a serious development plan is, of course, a balanced approach of bringing in prospects on up to estate gifts. So I want to get right into how do you build a strong, mature fundraising program uh, we'll be right back here with Linda Lysakowski on The Nonprofit Coach. A few program notes. I want to draw your attention to a very important show right here on The Nonprofit Coach one week from today. On November 8th, we will have Meg Garlinghouse from LinkedIn, who is going to be here on the show to share with you the best tools available to advance your fundraising program uh, as part of LinkedIn for Good and the work that LinkedIn does with nonprofit organizations. I also want to draw attention to a show that takes place the very next day. So, yes, mark your calendars, 12 noon Eastern on November 8th, LinkedIn here on The Nonprofit Coach. And then the very next day is our special monthly magazine known as The Nonprofit Coach, The Green Show. At 3 p.m. on November 9th, we'll have Adrian Caps here talking about how you can green your fundraising program. Don't miss those two back-to-back shows next week on November 8th and November 9th. Right after that, the next week leading up to uh, Thanksgiving week here in the United States uh, is here on the Nonprofit Coach is Randy Moss 
who's going to be talking about fundraising innovation and how nonprofits can begin profiting from uh, all of the online, Internet, and social media innovations. There will be no show the week of Thanksgiving, so we invite you that week to enjoy all of the podcasts, of which there are more than 60 podcasts that are available at tedhart.com. Click on radio links, and you can listen to over 60 podcasts free, and they are available for your iPod and iPad as well. We're going to head right back over and get right back into it on page two with Linda Lysakowski here on The Nonprofit Coach. Linda, of course, we're so pleased to have you here on the show because you are a known national expert on capital campaigns and big-dollar fundraising. So we want to get right into some of the very best advice that you have in your books that you provide to your uh, clients uh, regarding how do you get people to make big gifts. Okay, great. Well, I was really um, delighted to uh, publish my latest book, which is Capital Campaigns, Everything You Need to Know. And one of the things that I was really pleased about this book is, as I have been with all the Charity Channel in the Trenches books, because lots of times we read a lot of fantastic books that are great if we're the multi-billion dollar university and we're doing a multi-million or billion dollar campaign. But when you look at how practical is that for the one-person development shop, the small nonprofit organization that maybe doesn't even have a development shop, they oftentimes get discouraged because they don't think they can run a successful capital campaign. So what I liked about the approaches of the In the Trenches series is that they're all really practical, down-to-earth books. And in, in this book, I talk about how any organization of any size can successfully run a capital campaign if they take the right approach and do a lot of planning. And looking at big gifts and major gifts in a campaign, the amount might be very, very different for some organizations. For some organizations, a major gift might be a million dollars, but for some organizations, a major gift might be a thousand dollars. So I think the first thing to do is look at your own organization and find out what you consider a major gift and who your most likely donors are to major gifts. Sometimes when people go in to a capital campaign, they feel they have to run out and find a lot of new donors because, oh, gosh, we don't have anybody that could support us at that level. And when they do the planning and the research, they often find, and the listening, as you said earlier, that's so important, they often find that they do have donors that can support them at the major level, but maybe they've just never been asked before to, to support them at a significant level. So a lot of it, I think, goes back to the planning and research and listening to your donors and finding out what it is that excites your donors. And I've worked with a lot of organizations that have never run a capital campaign before, but they find when they do that oftentimes donors are really caught up in the big vision and maybe they've only given a $50 gift before because they've only been asked for $50 and nobody's ever come to them with a million-dollar idea before. So I do think that any organization can be successful in raising major gifts and capital campaign gifts if they do the planning, the research, the cultivation of their donors first. Well, how do you find, how do you go through a, a list uh, of donors that haven't given at that level to find out who could give? Well, there's a couple ways to do this. I mean, there's there's certainly all sorts of electronic research and, and services like Wealth Engine that will take your donors and do some initial screening. But I also believe that on the practical side of it, that some of your anecdotal research is the most effective. And I've been extremely successful in capital campaigns doing screening and rating meetings where we get together a group of board members or volunteers on the capital campaign cabinet and just start screening and looking at names of people. And I never cease to be amazed at the connections that people have right on their own boards of directors that they just never realized they had before until they go through this process. And it's really a, a process that has to take place early 
in a campaign because you might have somebody right now that could write out a million-dollar check to you, and you have that connection on your board, but you may not be aware of it until you go through this kind of a process. And I talk about that in the book where they can learn how to go through a screening process. And I even provide them some forms that they can use to help with this process. Walk us through. I'm a particular fan of starting off with uh, a good electronic screening um, mm-hmm. to surface those because I have yet to have a client that didn't find significant wealth in their database from people that they had no idea, people who didn't drive the fancy car or even have the fancy house, but right. but turns out did have a lot of wealth. Um, how is that possible? Talk to us a little bit about electronic screening and what can you learn about people by having electronic screening done? Well, I think sometimes you're, you are surprised, as you said, uh, years ago, and uh, gosh, I can't remember how long ago this book came out, but most of us in this profession are familiar with The Millionaire Next Door, which was one of the most fantastic books, I think, ever written. It wasn't really written for the professional fundraiser, but it's certainly been used by many professional fundraisers. And one of the things that I have found is that the people who do make the big gifts are usually not the people driving the Bentleys or the Jaguars. They're oftentimes the people driving the Ford station wagons and, you know, dressing just like you and I dress, Or and they're not really the high-profile people. In fact, I think most of the campaigns I've been involved with, the biggest donors have always been kind of those low-profile people that have the money, but they're just not investing it in the big fancy home and everything else. So the electronic screening can help you really determine a person's net wealth and and what they're really capable of giving because they use all sort of sophisticated data. But I also think it's important to have that personal touch because even though someone may have a great capacity to give, They may have circumstantial things in their life that you may not be aware of, like ailing parents or a sick child that that requires a lot of medical expenses. And that's why I think electronic screening combined with the anecdotal one-on-one individual screening is the perfect combination because the electronic screening will help weed out those that really aren't capable of making a major gift but then the personal one-on-one information that you gain through research and through screening sessions will also help look at things like, you know, what's this donor's propensity to give? Do they have any interest in our organization? Do we have a connection with them? Because you've probably had this experience, too, where you're working on a capital campaign or some major gift program and and you sit in a board training session and hear the board members say, well, can't we just get to Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey or you know, everybody throws out a couple of names. Um used to be Steve Jobs. Yeah, so they, so. Of, of course, they're just uh, sitting there waiting for, for your ask because it does come back to uh, relationships. So what I always tell folks is electronic screening is where you find the capacity but then you have to then find the relationship and the reason for why they might give, uh, which is what you're talking about, is then uh, going into these rating sessions. But, Linda, don't you find that it's a completely different discussion with folks? If you walk in with a list of people that you know have money and you're trying to now put together a strategy of how you can reach that person as opposed to walking in with a blank piece of paper saying, who do you know who's got money? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I I sort of call this – the fallacy of 15 names, and and I've for years preached this to people that I see so many organizations doing this. They say to their board members, you know, you guys have to help us identify donors, so everybody write down 15 names of people you can talk to, and there somehow seems to be this magic number of 15. Hardly anybody asks for 5 or 10, and occasionally somebody will ask for 25, but usually it's 15 names. And nobody ever gives them 15 names. Usually nobody gives them any names because it is a blank slate. And if you think about this, you know, you're handed a blank piece of paper and your mind usually goes about as blank as that piece of paper does. So you do need to give people some names to start with. Um, And I, I can recall one incident that I think I quoted in my book of an organization I was working with that was doing a, a capital campaign for the first time 
and they had a fairly unsophisticated board. Their board president was someone who worked in a local factory and, you know, was not anybody that you would think of as having a lot of means. But we had a list of people in their community that we thought might support this project. And one of the names on that list was a really, really wealthy person. Um, he and his wife, in fact, had received a philanthropy, philanthropist of the year award at one of the local NPD celebrations. And on my way to this meeting, in my mind, I was literally going through their board members and thinking, who might possibly have a connection with this gentleman and his wife? And I really couldn't think of anybody on their board that I thought would have a connection until we sat down and went through that list of names. And the board president, the factory worker, looked at me and said, Oh, I could talk to them. He's my cousin, and I mean, I yeah, was and, and who totally and who shocked. would have known? Uh, Linda, I'm just going to share a little reminder uh, with our our listeners. When we come back, we do have an email question. Uh, don't forget, you can call in and ask a question of Linda at three four seven. Three two four three zero eight zero. You also can ask questions over in the chat room, and we do have an email question. We'll get to that as soon as we come back from this break. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Linda, we have uh, less than 10 minutes here left on the show, and I do want to get to uh, Catherine's question. Catherine's uh, emailing us uh, from New York, and she's asking, how do you set a capital campaign goal? That's a great question. I think the goal has to be set by a couple of things. First of all, you look at your organization and its strategic planning and what it is that you need. If it's a, indeed a bricks-and-mortar campaign, it's probably pretty easy to identify your immediate bricks-and-mortar need. But then there's other things that you need to consider, like the campaign costs. Um, are you going to also establish an endowment? Because typically when you're adding to a building, because you want to add more programs, so there's going to be increased operating costs, there's going to be increased utilities, and you come up with what you think you really need. And that's usually the amount that you test during the planning study. And if you're not familiar with the planning study process, it is described in my book. Um, I usually call it a planning study. Some people will call it a feasibility study. It basically means pretty much the same thing, but it's a study where the consultant goes out, presents the case for support after you've developed the case for support, and talks to people in the community about whether they think that is a realistic goal, whether they think the project itself is doable, whether they think it's necessary in your community. And then after that report is prepared, the consultant will come back to you with a recommendation of, is this a reasonable goal for you or what else is going on in a community that might affect your your goal and sometimes the recommendation might be that you need to phase in your campaign maybe you can't build all three of those buildings at one time but you can do phase one two and three so the goal is is really has to start with what your needs are but then it does need to be tested in the in your constituency base to find out if it's reasonable and doable because one of the things that makes a capital campaign different from other types of fundraising is this is a very visible goal. Most of us, unless we work for United Way, do not publicly announce our annual fundraising goal to the general public. But when you're doing a capital campaign, you are announcing a formal goal, and people will, believe me, they will know if you don't reach that goal. They'll know if you exceeded your goal. Um, so the, the capital campaign is a much more public type of fundraising than other types of fundraising that you're doing in your organization. That's why the planning and the research are so important in a capital campaign, to make sure you go into this with a goal that you can raise. It, it has to be reasonable but also a stretch. Right. But what happens Absolutely. after a capital campaign? That is a perfect question because one of the things that I have always preached is 
you really need to think about life after your capital campaign. And, in fact, I have a chapter in my book that talks about that because too many times I go in as a consultant and talk to an organization and I say, well, when did you run the last capital campaign? Oh, 10 years ago. I say, okay, great. Let's, you know, start with the information from that. Oh, well, we don't know where that is. It's in a box somewhere stored away. And they don't really capitalize, if you pardon the pun on words, on their capital campaign because the capital campaign does a couple things for your organization that I think are really exciting, and this is why I really enjoy capital campaigns because it strengthens the organization going forward, and you should be able to much have a much stronger annual giving program and a much stronger plan giving program once you've gone through a successful capital campaign because you've done a couple things. You've involved more volunteers. A capital campaign is usually very volunteer-intensive. Um, you've created more public awareness. You've probably built a stronger infrastructure. You've educated your board and maybe your staff. And unfortunately, some organizations finish the capital campaign and it's like, okay, thanks volunteers, we appreciated you, thanks donors, and they don't capitalize on keeping those volunteers involved, you know, continuing to build their infrastructure, capitalizing on the fact that they have a more educated board now and a board that understands more about fundraising and that they have more increased community awareness of their organization. Right. So but, but Linda, isn't that an indication that the organization got into the capital campaign for the wrong reasons? In other words, are capital campaigns just about big dollars? No. To me, I think the more exciting part about a capital campaign is the fact that it strengthens your organization and gives you all of those things I just described. It's great that you obviously meet your goal and can build your building or build your endowment, whatever it is you're trying to do. But that, to me, is only a small part of it. It's it's the excitement that's generated about your organization and the awareness of your organization. When I do planning studies and I go into a, do an interview, invariably people will say to me, I'm so glad you came because now I really understand a lot more about that organization than I did before you walked in the door. And to me that means I've done my job as a consultant, but it also excites me for the organization that, gosh, here's people who didn't know what they were doing before, and now people really understand the organization. So to me, that's the major benefit of a capital campaign. So for our listeners today, uh, part of the takeaway for today, hopefully, uh, is that you get into capital campaigns not because you need the money, but because you're looking to transform your organization not only during the campaign but after. And when right. we're talking about forming the organization, it's whatever you're trying to accomplish for the campaign, the new building, the endowment, the whatever it is that you're trying to do, but also being very serious about a positive effect to your board of directors, to your annual campaign, and life after the campaign. Absolutely. Linda, uh, give us uh, uh, just a, a minute or two, because that's all that we have left, on how people can reach you uh, and how they can get your new book. Okay, well, the easiest way to reach me is go to my website, which is CV, that's C for Capital, V for Venture, CVFundraising.com. And I really encourage you to, to visit my website because I have literally hundreds of free tools on there that people can download, including some things like how to um, know if you're ready for a capital campaign. And all of my books are listed. I have a section, not just my books, but I have a section on my website called Books, which where I refer people to about 70 or 80 different books that, that I recommend they have in their development library. So they can link directly from my website to purchase those books, either from Amazon or the publishers. And um, my books are all listed on there with, with links appropriately. And uh, and how about a phone number to your office? Okay, I have a toll-free number, which is 866-539-9990. It's hard to believe how uh, fast time goes. Uh, but I know. Realize the customer <laughs> 
It's been an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to chat with you today and to learn some insights into everything from electronic screening uh, to what is ACFRE and National Philanthropy Day. It's one of the privileges of having someone so well-connected here on the Nonprofit Coach. Okay. Well, I'd love to come back again. I have another book which will be out by the end of this year called Raise More Money from Your Business Community, which is probably been, the, to me, one of the most exciting books for me to write because it's something I've believed in for a long time, that, that we can raise that 5% of corporate giving if we do it better. Well, that's great. Well, Linda, uh, thank you. Uh, promise me that you will come back here on The Nonprofit Coach, release your new book, and tell us all the secrets that are contained in that book. We'll catch you right back here on The Nonprofit Coach. Don't forget the special LinkedIn uh, expert, Meg Garlinghouse, will be with us next week here on The Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.